Hi, this is Bill Feldham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And our first article tonight is Trump, Putin, Saudi Crown Prince scramble to fix oil markets. All three leaders face economic threat from low prices. Mo- Moscow and Riyadh bury the hatchet. By uh, Georgie Katachkoviv, Summer Saeed, uh, excuse me, Andrew Ristachi and Justin Saech. The leaders of Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. are struggling to reverse a collapse in oil prices that has hurt their economies more than they expected and has threatened to cause political damage for each. The big decline in oil prices sparked by a Saudi-Russia feud and a sharp drop in demand thanks to the coronavirus pandemic has hit all three of the men's supporters at a moment when their economies are falling towards recession. President Donald Trump, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam, and uh, Russia President Vladimir Putin lead the world's top three oil producers, respectively. Mr. Trump is counting on uh, financial support from the country's now vast oil patch in his re-election bid. Mr. Putin is trying to extend his rule amid a weak economy, and the crown prince needs to consolidate power in keeping funding his ambitious reform efforts. Amid Saudi-Russian standoff over production cuts, Mr. Trump has threatened to impose tariffs on oil imports. Imports. Mr. Putin refused to come to the phone when Saudi Crown Prince tried to patch things up and salvage a long-running agreement between the two that had supported oil prices. Prince Mohammed then blew up the oil markets by saying he would flood the world with crude just at a time when the pandemic meant few needed it. On Thursday, Saudi Arabia and Russia ended their stalemate and hoped to convince the handful of other major oil producers to join them in the biggest monthly oil production cut ever. Questions over the details of the deal left investors skeptical the cutbacks would be enough. Oil prices ended Thursday lower before a market holiday Friday. Benchmarked U.S. crude tumbled 9.3% to 22.76 a barrel. Mr. Trump played oil market dealmaker to keep the agreement alive. He spoke Thursday with Saudi and Russian leaders saying they were getting along very well during the call. He spoke again Friday with Mr. Putin. When Mexico threatened to scuttle the deal by refusing to cut production as much as necessary, Mr. Trump stepped up and appeared to make a modest concession to ensure the deal among the 23 nations didn't fall apart. He said the U.S. would cut 250,000 to 300,000 barrels a day to make up the difference between what Mexico offered and what Russia and Saudi Arabia demanded. The Trump administration had previously resisted calling for additional cuts, saying U.S. production would fall naturally because of lower prices. It couldn't immediately be determined whether the cuts Mr. Trump denounced would be mandated by the government or would be the result of market-driven declines. The president said he expected the Mexican government to reimburse the U.S. in return for the production cuts. It was unclear what he meant, and the White House declined to offer an explanation. The Saudi-Russian pact, if it holds, is a victory for Mr. Trump. 
it would cut global production by as much as 20 million barrels a day if other producers agreed to the necessary reductions. Russia would agree to cut production by 2 million barrels of oil a day and Saudi Arabia by 3.3 million barrels. Facing re-election, Mr. Trump had initially said low oil prices would benefit consumers. Supporters in the energy industry warned sustained low oil prices could also wipe out thousands of jobs in states like Texas that had been important sources of fundraising for Mr. Trump's campaign. What we're talking about is helping some 10 million Americans who work in the oil and gas sector. These jobs are located in key battleground states and in many rural areas that are Trump strongholds, says Dan Eberhardt, chief executive of Canary LLC, a Colorado drilling service company. Mr. Eberhardt, a Republican donor, has been in touch with the White House in recent weeks. A White House spokesman didn't immediately respond for comment. Mr. Putin's advisors initially said Russia would weather an oil price war with Saudi Arabia and that the biggest victim would be the U.S. Mr. Putin put off a phone call with King uh, Salman earlier in a standoff, the Wall Street Journal previously reported. But oil accounts for about one-third of the government's budgets. The economic turmoil could dent his popularity as he attempts to change the Constitution and stay in office beyond his current term. Well, that's nonsense, unless he's talking about Putin. The depth of insuring price drops cleared some minds in the Kremlin, said uh, Vladimir uh, Frolov, a former senior Russian diplomat and political analyst. This creates a serious risk to Russia's economy. A month ago, no one could have predicted such a crisis and falling demand. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters Friday, Our position for stabilization of the market is consistent. Although Prince Mohammed instigated the price war, his government and his personal ambitions to transform the country are the most accurately impacted, acutely impacted, excuse me. Oil sales account for most of the kingdom's revenue and the big price fall is hampering the prince's plans to invest billions of dollars in infrastructure projects and diversify the kingdom's economy. In recent days, the prince has been huddled with top advisors in the kingdom's remote northwest desert trying to figure out a way forward for the Saudi economy, says people familiar with the matter. He and his deputies have discussed cutting the budget across government ministries by as much as 30%, says people familiar with the matter. This week, the country declared a unilateral two-week ceasefire in Yemen as it tries to extricate itself from a costly war with Iran-backed fighters. The oil feud has its roots in efforts by Saudi Arabia and Russia to boost prices amid a surge of shale oil production From the U.S., Saudi Arabia tried to force those producers out of business in 2014 by flooding the market. Since Saudi oil is cheaper to pump than American shale oil, Saudi officials reasoned they could bring the oil price below the frackers' break-even point and in the gulp, or the glut. But the American companies proved more resilient and better able to produce at low prices than the Saudis expected. So the kingdom, along with its allies and OPEC, joined forces with Russia and a group of other big producers. The larger group, dubbed, uh, dubbed OPEC Plus, 
reached agreement over the past few years to limit their output and prop up prices. When the alliance fell apart last month, Russia officials and oil industry executives weren't planning on an oil route of such magnitude. Mr. Putin had been forced on Russia's biggest constitutional overhaul since the end of the Soviet Union. Changes that would eventually allow Mr. Putin to extend his rule to 2036. On March 1st, Mr. Putin convened the heads of Russia's oil companies in a conference room at Moscow Nunkonvo Airport. Those executives are longtime allies of Mr. Putin, and their support has helped him hold power. Could Russia withstand a sharp decline in crude prices? Mr. Mr. Putin asked. The answer was a resounding yes, says people familiar with the meeting. Low oil prices are great because they will damage U.S. shale. Igor Shishin, the head of the state-controlled giant Rosneft, told the assembled oil executives and government officials. Rosneft didn't respond to a request for comment. In a few weeks, the view had changed. Russia oil executives began calling for Russia to seek a new deal with the Saudis. Ongoing tensions would amount to a war of attrition with the U.S. will win, said uh, Leonard Fednam, vice president of Luke Oil. Mr. Putin's approval rating hit 63% in March, the lowest since 2013, according to the independent pollster Levada Center. Mr. Putin spoke with Mr. Trump on March 30th and afterwards said Russia was ready for a new agreement with OPEC and the U.S. After speaking with Prince Mohammed, Mr. Trump tweeted on April 2nd that he was hopeful Russia and Saudi Arabia will be cutting back approximately 10 million barrels and maybe substantially more. In Saudi Arabia, the financial and political situation is growing more serious. The new coronavirus is spreading in the kingdom. Nearly 200 members of the royal family, including Riyadh's governor, Prince Faisal bin Bandar al-Saud, his wife, and the son of another provincial governor, have been infected, says people familiar with the matter. The economic fallout is spreading, too. Prince Mohammed has been working to bolster Saudi Arabia's stock market by using government money to buy stocks, says people familiar with the planning strategy he has used before. The crown prince has also continued to crack down on officials and princes he accuses of corruption. Two senior princes who are potential rivals to the throne have been held for weeks, says people familiar with the matter. He also detained at least 10 social media influencers and intellectuals since the start of April, according to people familiar with the matter. In the U.S., Mr. Trump, who has much less control over his country's oil industry, says Prince Mohammed or Mr. Putin, doesn't have an obvious way to cut production in hopes of starving off bankruptcies and job losses. His administration, though, discussed the idea of idling offshore oil production to stem the spread of the virus. The journal reported earlier this month that would take about 2 million of the U.S. 13 million barrels per day off a production line, or production offline. Despite the mammoth sway Russia and Saudi Arabia have over oil markets, the U.S. nonetheless have some policy leverage, including tariffs. Mr. Trump and his advisors say, we essentially would be saying we don't want foreign oil. 
We don't want any foreign oil. We're just going to use our oil, and that would help to save an industry, Mr. Trump said at a recent White House news conference. There could be a political upside for Mr. Trump, even if oil stays low. Gasoline prices are at their lowest point in years. Even as he acknowledged that low oil prices are harming the U.S. economy, Mr. Trump has touted the corresponding drop in gas prices, casting it as a virtual tax cut for consumers. Do you think it's just luck that gas prices are so low and falling? Low gas prices are like another tax cut, he wrote on Twitter earlier this year. So there you go. That's uh, what he's talking about there. So, working on it. So, continuing on, that's the end of that article. So, that's what's going on with gas prices if you're wondering why they're so low. And moving on, our next article is... uh, I just seen it here. Oh, there it is. Uh, Russia disinformation fed the FBI's Trump investigation. Some answers and some new questions from newly declassified parts of an inspector general's report. And this comes from Ron Johnson, April 10, 2020, out of the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal. Declassified footnotes to a Justice Department inspector general's Report shows that the Federal Bureau of Investigation team investigating members of the Trump campaign received classified reports in 2017 identifying key pieces of the sealed dossier as products of a Russian disinformation campaign. This might be only the tip of the iceberg because only recently declassified information demonstrates that even more disinformation may have been planted in Christopher Steele's reporting. Let that sink in. The FBI knew that at least some of the evidence against the Trump campaign and maybe more was likely part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Evidence from a source that was central and essential for getting the first FISA warrant. It isn't clear what, if any, the FBI did to determine whether their investigation was based in substantial part on Russian disinformation. Yet the FBI assistant director in charge of the investigation, Bill Prystrap, told the inspector general that as of May 2017, when Robert Mueller took over as special counsel, the FBI didn't have any indication whatsoever that their evidence was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. I first learned all this in late December 2019 when a member of my staff reviewed the classified version of the Inspector General's report and asked me to meet him in a secure room under the Capitol. As As he walked me through the four footnotes, my immediate reaction was that the American people needed to know this information as soon as possible. My colleague, Senator Chuck Grassley, and I began pressing Attorney General William Barr and eventually Acting Director of National Intelligence Richard Grinnell for full declassification of these footnotes. That's why they're now public. The FBI's team handling of these intelligence reports seemed consistent with how it ran the entire investigation. From the opening of the investigation, the FBI team kept accumulating exculpatory information 
Yet rather than wind the investigation down, they ramped it up. Minimally intrusive open source searches became Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants and confidential human sources targeting the campaign staffer. So uh, basically what they're saying here is that they have evidence that all this information was fake and from the Russian sources. Then it got worse. The FBI team excluded exculpatory exculpatory information from its FISA application. It ignored exculpatory evidence provided by another U.S. government agency and when that later became an issue, an FBI attorney doctored an email to cover it up. Given all that, it's not surprising that the FBI, on learning their evidence was the product of a Russian disinformation campaign, simply shrugged it off. As Mr. Grassley, Grassley and I wrote in our declassified request to Mr. Barr, these footnotes provide insight essential for an accurate evaluation of the entire investigation. Consider these questions. Why did former FBI Director James Comey and former FBI General Counsel James Baker refuse to have their security clearances reinstated before they were interviewed by the Inspector General? Was it so they wouldn't have to explain this information? The next question. Which member of the FBI team reviewed these reports? Did Lisa Page and Peter Stroke, who referred to the opening of the investigation as an insurance policy? Did the FBI attorney who doctored the email? Did Mr. Mueller? What, if any, did the FBI do to follow up on these reports? Did the FBI team have access to other reports like this? Is this another example of the FBI team's sloppiness, or is it sufficient to show their ignorance was willful? The Steele dossier already ranks as one of the dirtiest political tricks of all time. The Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton campaign paid for it, laundered it through friends and allies in the Justice and State Departments, and spun it into a full-blown FBI investigation of her political rival. Then, after Donald Trump was elected, it was used as a political cudgel to bludgeon his administration and set up an 18-month special counsel investigation. Now it's been revealed the FBI had evidence that it was based in substantial part on a Russian disinformation campaign. Last month, my committee's vote to obtain a subpoena from Andrei Telensko, uh, uh, a former Ukrainian diplomat who later worked for a U.S. Democratic political consulting firm, was delayed because of last-minute concern that information he might provide could be part of Russian disinformation, a cloak-and-dacker operation to derail that subpoena also needs to be revealed. So, I've heard a lot of concern and outrage from my colleagues across the aisle about the perils of foreign interference and the need to steer well clear of anything remotely suggestive of Russian disinformation. Clearly, the FBI did not exhibit similar concerns and act accordingly. It also will be interesting to see how many 
of my Democratic colleagues will join tenacious oversight efforts to determine how the FBI misused actual Russian disinformation. So there you go. There's uh, the report there that it was the information from Russia that started the investigation into the Trump the Trump campaign. And now here's a, not a happy story, but it's from the Wall Street Journal. And it's, I'm sorry, I can't kiss you. Coronavirus victims are dying alone. A brutal hallmark of the pandemic is the way it isolates victims in their final moments. This is from April 10th, 2020 by Jennifer Levitz and Paul Berger. Her father was 83 years old, sweating and gasping for breath. Nancy Hopkins leaned down and rubbed his arms just before paramedics put him in an ambulance. I'll be with you every step of the way, Miss Hopkins promised him. That was as close as she would ever again get to her dad. When she arrived at the nearby hospital in Conway, South Carolina, that evening, in mid-March, she learned she could not go in because of visitor restrictions imposed during the coronavirus pandemic. She sat alone in her car in the hospital parking lot for hours, crying when she finally drove off. Her father, Robert McCoy, a retired livestock dealer, was sick with the coronavirus and lay 14 days in an isolation room on the top floor of Conway Medical Center when he near when he neared death on April 1st, Miss Hopkins said goodbye through a phone placed in a plastic bag and held to his ear by a nurse. It has been the biggest challenge of my life knowing I couldn't be there, said Miss Hopkins, who is 59 and a school teacher, because my father depended on me. A brutal hallmark of the pandemic is the way it isolates its victims even in their final moments. Patients die alone in hospital rooms, cut off from their spouses, children, siblings, and often their pastors or rabbis. The emotional end-of-life moments, if they happened at all, unfolded over an electronic tablet or phone with a stranger serving as an intermediary. I struggle with saying words like unfair, but that is what it really feels like, says David Michael Dudley Jr., he said goodbye to his 61-year-old father who was dying from the new coronavirus over a Zoom video conference on March 31st. You're not only telling me my dad is not going to recover, he says, but I can't even be there to say anything. I've got to do it in probably the most impersonal way. The elder McDudley, a charter bus driver, had woken up with a cough one week earlier and was on a ventilator in a Baltimore hospital. The younger, younger Mr. Dudley, 36, didn't know if his father could hear him, but he had things he wanted to say mainly, I love you. He strained to get the words out in the awkward group call with other relatives and doctors and nurses in the hospital room. I squeezed one in, I squeezed one in at the end, he says. Louisville, Kentucky family matriarch Kiko Newitz was rarely alone before the pandemic. Her huge family saw to that. Miss Newt's widowed decades ago raised eight children, at times working in an elementary school cafeteria. She had 
A stroke five years ago, but still lived in her own home. One person in the family would stay with her on a rotating schedule every single night. Most of her children and 28 grandchildren lived within a 15-minute drive of her house. She was 87 and stood just 4'10". A a spitfire, as one of her grandchildren put it, if you missed a family gathering, you would expect a grilling from Miss Newt's. She taught children's Bible study and loved the slot machines at casinos. Nobody laughed harder at a practical joke. Then came the shortness of breath that landed her in the hospital bed on March 25th. She tested positive for the uh, Corona-19 or the COVID-19 or the Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it, was put on an oxygen machine and went downhill quickly. Two days later, on a Friday night, the family was forced to make a decision about whether to put her on a ventilator or not. Miss Newts had said not long ago that she didn't want that. They had to be sure. Six of her eight grown children, ages 52 to 64, drove separately to Norton Burrowsville Hospital in Louisville and gathered in the dimly lit parking lot, standing six feet apart to maintain social distancing, The hospital allowed one of them to suit up in the full protective gear akin to a hazmat suit and go into her room briefly. Daughter Kathy Mills, 62, entered to find Miss Newt weary but awake, lying on her side with one arm extended off the bed. Miss Mills looked at at her from behind the N95 respirator mask and a second mask atop that and safety goggles. Wearing two pairs of blue hospital gloves, she grabbed her mother's hand. I'm sorry I can't kiss you, she told her mother through tears. Did she want to go to heaven, she asked her mother. Miss Newts nodded and gestured to the medical equipment in the room. This is too much, she said softly. Miss Mills went back to the parking lot, and a nurse called down and let each sibling say goodbye by FaceTime right then. Debbie Taylor, another daughter, ached listening to her siblings' intimate goodbyes. We couldn't hug each other, she says. It was unnatural. Normally, we would have been crying on each other's shoulder. Miss Newts made it into the week weekend. Granddaughter Lucy Taylor, 29, delivered a laptop loaded with social networking app house party to the hospital. A nurse set it up facing Miss Newts' bed, essentially giving the family a live feed into the hospital room. Debbie Taylor spotted the nurse in their protective gear in the room and wondered what her mom thought. Do these COVID patients think there are aliens in the room, she recalls thinking. The family sung and talked to her. Talked to her. Miss Newts would reach out to touch the screen when her great-grandchildren came into the picture. Relatives were watching as she took her final breath at 7.45 a.m. Monday. Nurses Audrey Waters and Julie Hunt were each holding one of Mrs. Newt's hands as she died. Miss Waters, 33, had worked overnight but stayed past her shift because she and Miss Hunt had promised the family they wouldn't let Miss Newt's die alone. I felt blessed to be able to be there, said Miss Hunt, who is 28, but it absolutely ripped my heart out as well. Near Toledo, Ohio, nurse Helen Revs says she has never been through anything like this during her 35 years in the profession. 
Previously, when someone was dying, she would call the family so they could be in the room. Relatives would both comfort the patient and commune and mourn with one another. Miss Revere's recently, in the first of her arranged a FaceTime video, called some grown children so grown children could say goodbye to their father who was dying of the COVID-19. It's hard, she says. You put yourself in their place. And so the rest of the article goes on and explains some more of these uh, examples here of how people are dying without their um, loved ones around with them. So this is a very sad article, as you know, as you hear. But that's all the time I have for this half hour. Just hang on and uh, we'll move on to other articles for the next half hour. This is Bill Feldham. So grab your drinks and your tissues and we'll move on and get better stories. So grab your sodas. Here we go. Hi, this is Bill Feldman coming to you with the second half of the Wall Street Journal. I hope that you uh, were able to get your treats and your snacks and your drinks. So here we go. Our first article is Apple, Google to turn phones into coronavirus trackers. So more loss of your freedoms. In rare collaboration, tech rivals look to methods used in some Asian countries to curb contagions, efforts is likely to raise privacy concerns. So just remember, whatever they do in the Asian countries, it's coming our way. This is out of San Francisco, updated April 10th, 2020. San Francisco, Apple Incorporated and Google will build software together that will alert people if they were in contact with someone Infected with the coronavirus, the Wuhan flu from China, an unprecedented collaboration between two Silicon Valley giants and rivals. The project, which is certain to raise privacy concerns, offers the most concrete technological solution to date for governmental authorities searching for ways to at least partially lift the lockdown order that have swept the nation. The companies are by far the world's biggest smartphone software providers with billions of users worldwide. The company said jointly Friday that the contact tracing tools they are developing would be built into the smartphones using existing Bluetooth technology that tracks whether phones have passed within a certain distance of one another. If a user tests positive for the coronavirus and chooses to participate in the system, other phones will be able to search through their location data to determine whether they pass close enough for long enough to risk a potential exposure within the past 14 days. Those unknown individuals, provided they, too, have opted in, would receive a notification on their own phones according to draft documents posted by the companies, such as alert. You have recently been exposed to someone who has tested positive for the Corona-19 or COVID-19. Tap for more information. Right now, it's voluntary. Apple and Google will release next month the first version of software for the alert apps, which could be developed by public health authorities, among others. The private effort wasn't coordinated in advance with the White House task force that is looking at potential tech solutions to curb the spread of the virus. 
according to a person familiar with the matter. President Trump said Friday that the technology raised privacy concerns, telling reporters, it's very interesting, but a lot of people worry about it in terms of a person's freedom. We're going to take a look at that, very strong look at it. The initiative would turn the smartphones in Americans' pockets into pandemic tracking devices. The concept, similar to that used most prominently in Singapore earlier this year, could make it easier to contain future outbreaks outbreaks as people return to daily lives. Most experts believe such a technological solution will be necessary before isolation measures can be fully removed. Apple and Google announcements come as a patchwork of academics and tech companies in Europe and the U.S., including at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, have been developing similar technologies and apps to alert people of potential infections. Promoters say the tool could allow many people to go back to work and schools while encouraging only those people who have been exposed to shelters in place. But debate remains over whether voluntary apps would be adopted widely enough to provide much public health benefit. This is where this is where it becomes uh, mandatory. Something, some other efforts have uh, something, other efforts have struggled with. The involvement of Apple and Alphabet Incorporated, or Google, which together account for the operating systems in almost all smartphones, could address that concern. Contact tracing is very resource intensive, and anything that could help us do that would be very uh, valuable, said Caitlin Rivers, an epidemiologist at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. But you'd need widespread adoption for that to scale. Concerns have also revolved around whether the benefits of such a system would outweigh the potential exposure of sensitive information about where and with whom people spend time. Apple and Google said information about the the other people, users, coming to contact with wouldn't be shared unless a user volunteers it. They also said users' location and personally personally identifiable information wouldn't be collected. Yeah, right. The companies began collaborating in late March, an Apple spokesman said. Some privacy advocates praised Apple and Google's systems because it is decentralized rather than one in which all data is uploaded to central servers where it could be misused. (laughs) Somebody's naive. In Apple's and Google's models, individual phones would determine independently whether they've spent time near devices of infected people. And only then would potentially infected people be prompted to identify themselves to health authorities for testing. This is very effective power play in favor of privacy by Apple and Google, said Michael Vanell, an assistant professor of digital rights and regulations at University College London. They have made a very conscious decision against very centralized databases while still giving epidemiologists the data they need. To work in the U.S., the system would require clearing two major hurdles. Users would have to volunteer to input personal health information into an app, and public health authorities would need to make testing more widespread. 
Apple and Google says privacy and security would be central to the design. In a rare, rare move, hear that? In a rare move, they published some of the proposed code behind the software so researchers can analyze it. The code shows, among other things, that all user data is deleted if an individual decides later to delete the app. Yeah, right. And that any connection to the company's advertising operations are disabled. See that? Company's advertising operations are disabled. Just remember, in the fine print, the advertisers can do anything they want. There has never been a more important moment to work together to solve one of the world's most pressing problems, the company said in a joint statement. The project represents a detente for now between two fierce rivals. It addresses what many technology and health officials have considered an indomitable obstacle, gaining adoption across different smartphone ecosystems that don't typically work together. These guys have resisted doing something like this because they don't want to expose how creepy their devices are, but they feel they need to be proactive before someone like the government forces something on them. <laughs> said Tala Shamoon, chief executive of Intertrust Technologies Corporation, a data rights management company. The question is, who's the trusted third party that will connect and track the data? To be effective, health authorities and government officials would need to know that people are within a few feet of one another. GPS is too blunt an instrument to make such minute detections, but Bluetooth is more precise because it is based on proximity technology and has a range of about 30 feet. It isn't clear whether the app's reliance on phone sensors risks triggering false positives. Oh, really? The epidemiologist said, a workable app would need to be able to detect when devices are within six feet or more than 10 or 15 minutes. More fleeting contract, uh, contacts, such as people or one, such as people one passing on the street, are less likely to lead to an infection. They say it still tends to be close contact that are the biggest danger. John Hopkins, Miss Rivers said. One concern is that these technologies wouldn't be refined enough to be useful. The array of sensors on phones should provide enough information to determine when people had significant enough exposure to pose a risk, Ms. Shamoon said, potentially generating sufficient information to ease social distancing measures. Any kind of targeted lockdown is better than a wholesale lockdown, he said. Apple and Google declined to comment on the potential for false positives. Another concern for public health officials is that apps might reach only certain populations of people who are more likely to have smartphones and then only those who opt in to serve. In 2019, Pew Research found that 53% of people 65 and older have a smartphone in the U.S. compared to 81% of the population as a whole. So there you go. They're going to start tracking us on our cell phones. For this coronavirus, and they're gonna—that's how they're gonna start tracking everybody. So, there you go.
And so the next follow-up article for that is Feds emerge as power player, power player poses new risk to its independent. The central bank acted quickly to address the coronavirus crisis, but the move could drag into a partial battleground. On Wednesday, investors put the probability that the Ford Motor Company would default on its debts at around 20%. By Friday, that had plunged to 14%. What happened? In between, the Federal Reserve announced that as part of its extensive new programs to support the economy, it would buy bonds that have been investment grade until March 22nd, but no longer are, a category that includes Ford. That illustrates the sweeping new influence the central bank has over the economy and the potential pearl that accompanies that influence. The Fed got here by proving it can act quickly, effectively, and apolitically at a time when the federal government is often hamstrung by partisan dysfunction. But it requires the Fed to make decisions traditionally left to politicians that thus risk dragging it into the partisan battleground. At the outset of the coronavirus crisis, the Federal Reserve didn't seem destined to be a consequential player. It has no public health role and can't give cash to closed restaurants or their laid-off worker. With interest rates so near zero, its ability to stimulate growth was limited. But this week it had emerged as perhaps the most powerful component of the entire federal response. On Thursday, it unveiled details of up to $2.3 trillion in loans it could issue to businesses of all sizes and sorts and to states and local governments. The Fed's crisis response has three phases. The first was traditionally monetary policy response. It lowered interest rates to near zero on March 15th to absorb the blow to domestic demand that effectively exhausted its conventional ammunition. The second phase was to purchase vast quantities of treasury and mortgage-backed bonds led heavily to lended heavily to banks and bond dealers and offer credit to hundreds of foreign central banks to meet dollar shortages abroad. This was to prevent the financial system from seizing up. Part of its established role as lender of last resort to banking systems, albeit an unprecedented scale. The third phase was to use its emergency authority under Section 13 Paragraph 3 of the Federal Reserve Act to set up programs to lend money market funds, issuers of corporate debt, municipal governments, and Main Street businesses, big and small. This goes well beyond the central bank's traditional duties. It is akin to financial policy, territory long off limits to central bankers because it risks taxpayers' funds and requires politically fraught decisions about who gets help and who doesn't. So we're depending on politicians. The first Fed, the Feds first got the authority from for such lending in the 1930s, but in the following decades avoided using it. It then invoked the authority in 2008-9 financial crisis to lend to financial companies. Because of the controversy over bailouts, the 2010 Dodd-Frank financial reform law forbid the Fed 
from using its 13-3 power to prop up individual companies and could use it only with the Treasury Secretary's approval. Ironically, a decade after having its authority circumscribed, the Fed is more influential than ever. The coronavirus response legislation enacted last month, known as CARES, authorized the Fed to leverage $454 billion of taxpayer funds, potentially to loans worth 10 times that month. Much. There is an irony here. Many in Congress have spent the past decade at times joined by President Trump sniping at the Fed. Yet when the crisis came, both realized no one else had the necessary capacity and technocratic competence. For this, Chairman Jerome Powell, known to many as Jay, gets credit. He took office in early 2018 without the political capital of Alan Greenspan or the economic chops of Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen. Yet he has demonstrated both a clear grasp of economic challenges facing the U.S. and finely tuned political radar, nurturing cordial relations with both parties in Congress. He has turned aside questions about charged political questions and ignored Mr. Trump's taunts. In the face of an unprecedented economic shock, he quickly concluded holding back holding back wasn't an option. Still, he has sought and sought to insulate the Fed as much as possible from the messy business of deciding who gets credit and who doesn't. We don't make decisions about individual firms, only broad classes of borrowers, he said in a video event sponsored by the Brookings Institution on Thursday. And all the Fed programs must be approved by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, he added. Yet the Fed will make lots of judgments that implicitly or explicitly determine which firms and municipalities get credit. And any that lose out could seek the ear of the sympathetic congressman or Mr. Trump. It is hotly contested presidential election they are sure to listen. These pressures would be unpleasant at any time, but they could as both the country and its institutions have become increasingly polarized, Mr. Trump has repeatedly pressured the Fed to pursue policies he prefers, and while Mr. Powell has turned those demands aside, his term expires in 2022. Democrats may have demands of their own for more assistance to local governments, for example, or employers of key constituents. Much as the Fed prefers to stay out of political arenas, that may prove impossible as its economic footprint grows, but then the alternative, stay close to home and watch the economic founder, looks worse. So there you go. That's what's going on with the big money this year. That's how they're getting around all this. We got to pay all this back. So there's always a give and take in all this. All right, now this from uh, Barton Swam. Joe Biden and the slow death of liberalism. Democrats are again choosing a morbid ideology, brief of new ideas. Radicalism beckons. In nominating Joe Biden, Democrats aren't choosing a moderate. They're choosing liberalism over revolution. Joe and I have a different a very different voting record. 
Bernie Sanders said after Super Tuesday. This is demonstrably true. Their records differed in substantial ways, he went on. Joe and I have a very different vision for the future of this country. That is not quite right. The idea that Mr. Biden has a vision for the future is preposterous. He has a vision for the past, and even that is cloudy. I don't criticize him for it. I am a conservative. Vision, in my understanding, is for profits, not statesmen. But Mr. Biden is no conservative. He is a liberal, and a liberalism needs vision. Mr. Sanders is a radical, not a liberal. The liberal worldview seeks a more equitable and open politically by means of piecemeal political reform. The radical outlook envisions a new world, not an incrementally better one. He wants to remark, remake the U.S. economy and banish all forms of inequality. With Mr. Biden's ascension and Mr. Sanders' decision this week to suspend his campaign, Democrats are again choosing liberalism. The important thing to understand about modern American liberalism, though, is that it is a spent force. It is out of ideas. It is visionary, but it no longer sees much of anything. That Mr. Biden has been reduced to protesting the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus outbreak safely tucked away in his basement, nicely symbolizes liberalism impotence. The liberal politician can offer a collection of ideas, but those ideas are old ones, repackaged. He can offer a vision, but it is the same vision liberal politicians were offering 20 or 40 years ago. Accepting the 1992 Democratic presidential nomination, Bill Clinton ridiculed President George H.W. Bush's disdain for the vision thing. Mr. Clinton quoted Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The goals he enunciated in that speech were more or less the same goals every other Democratic nominee has endorsed since the middle of the 20th century. A fair shot for working Americans, new investments in schools, expansion of access to health care. Mr. Biden could give that speech today and few would suspect him of plagiarism. The modern American liberal is the product of what's commonly called liberal democracy, the social and political order obtaining in North America and post-war Europe. Liberal democracies value divided governmental institutions, a regulated market economy, a generous welfare state, personal autonomy, and the expansion of political rights to formerly excluded classes. Conservative and liberals alike are liberals in this broader sense, but American liberals believe more fervently than conservatives in the power of governmental means to achieve human betterment, and liberals tend to scorn habit and traditions as impediments to righteous goals. The goals of today's liberalism are minor and uninspiring. It has little else to do than tinker with the welfare state, ban things deemed dangerous or unhealthy, and oppose conservatives. That has been the case for half a century. America 
American liberalism, last great triumph, came during the administration of Lyndon B. Johnson. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Food Stamps Rights Act of 1964, and the Social Security Amendment of 1965, which created Medicare and Medicaid. Since then, it has accomplished no original reform, only refined or expanded ones. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Democratic Party voted against. It's true that liberals have won two major victories on personal autonomy, abortion rights in 1973 and same-sex marriage in 2015, but both came about as a result of court decisions. Neither came, neither could have passed in the U.S. Congress. The best evidence that liberals are out of ideas is that they are busy regressing on the ones they had. An obvious example, liberals since John Stuart Mill has expelled freedom of speech almost as a matter of religious faith. But one now finds astonishingly few people on the left prepared to defend it in a principled way and quite a few urging governments and corporations to censor unpopular views. Most liberals no longer see much of the problem with campus speech codes. And liberals often seem to believe that the First Amendment guarantee of freedom of speech applies to everything but political speech. Artistic expression, pornography, violent videos, yes. A movie critical of Hillary Clinton which the government sought to censor in the Citizens United case, no. Or consider the expansion of the franchise, from the reform bills in Britain in the 19th century to the suffrage movement in the early 20th century to the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, liberals care passionately about extending full political rights to groups that lack them. But everybody has the vote now. Stories of large-scale voter intimidation are not credible. Some favor enfranchising felons and aliens, including those in the country illegally. But these causes cannot sustain a political movement. Opportunistic complaints about the Electoral College aside, liberals began long ago to distrust universal suffrage. They are generally happy to entrust unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats and elites, domestic and transnationals with vast authority, and they are content to let federal courts decide almost any question in defiance of legislation and popular will, provided the decision falls on the liberal side. Some real liberals now openly long for the days when moderately corrupt party bosses decide congressional and presidential nominations. The past three years have provided innumerable books by liberal authors attesting to an ongoing assault on democracy. But these books mainly lament democracy's failure to yield liberal results. They do not defend democracy principles themselves. Other recent works advance unabashedly anti-democratic arguments such as Jason Brennan's Against Democracy 2016 and David Von Reibach's Against Elections 2016. One may see liberals' fixation on diversity and inclusion as a kind of replacement for universal suffrage. It's a poor one. The diverse people 
liberals demand to be included racial minorities, gays, people of indeterminate sex already have full rights and privilege as citizens. Nor does the modern American liberal believe fully in the greatness of all liberal principles, equality. Affirmative action, political correctness, identity, identity politics, each affirm the belief that some citizens have rights that others don't. The point here is not to disparage liberalism, it is to point out that liberalism in America achieved the last of its great aim a half a century ago. Since then, liberal successes have steadily diminished in importance. The Clean Air Act of 1970 and the Clean Water Act of 1972 empowered states and federal governments to alleviate pollution. In 1979, Jimmy Carter signed legislation creating the Education Department, but its function has never been clear. In 1996, Bill Clinton signed a monumental welfare reform law, but its purpose was to curb liberalism excesses, not to further its aim. Then there was the Affordable Care Act of 2010, a non-radical version of a radical idea that managed to make an expensive and confusing system even more expensive and confusing. Whatever the merits of these laws, none compare in sheer transformative effort with the greatest reform of the first half of the last century, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, the Tennessee Valley Authority Act of 1933, and the Social Security Act of 1935. It's not the fault of the American Democrats that they've run out of ideas. Liberal democracies and center-left parties across Europe have reached a similar status. But stasis is itself the problem because liberalism is a restless philosophy. It must always be doing something to rest or to express satisfaction with the state of things is to become conservative. Hence liberals' tenacious belief that fascism still threatens the republic and that racism still blights it. So there you go. What more can we say? But Democrats aren't ready for revolution. They appear determined to choose a placeholder candidate, a man who offers no ideas and talks mainly about the past. Mr. Biden offers the backward-looking vision of an exhausted liberalism. So there you go. That's our time for this week. I hope you enjoyed the articles that were selected for you. So from me and... and uh, <laughs> and radio reading here at Youngstown. Happy Easter, and you have a blessed week and a blessed weekend. And don't be afraid. Trust Jesus. And I hope you a blessed and happy day. This is Bill Feldham. Until next week, God bless you.